0: This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi, I'm Barry Liberman, editor and publisher of Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast a monthly series where we chat to inspiring, thought-provoking guests in front of an intimate audience. In this episode, our handsome assistant editor, Nathan Scolaro, speaks with writer and social researcher, Hugh McKay, a man who's spent six decades examining how we live and what makes a meaningful life. This conversation, held in collaboration with our dear friends at the School of Life, was recorded live in wood-panelled cosiness at the National Gallery of Victoria. It starts with Hugh delivering a deeply important speech about how to find spiritual fulfilment in a secular age. We particularly loved Hugh's practical tips for living a good life. It all begins by chatting with your neighbours.
1: Good evening, everybody. I'd like to begin by just reading a paragraph from... Uh, Peter De Vries remarkable novel, The Blood of the Lamb. I doubt whether many of you have read it. It was published in 1961, and it's out of print. I'd lend you my copy if you would like to borrow it. Uh, and I've used this quote in the beginning of my new book, Beyond Belief. <clears throat> Human life means nothing. But that is not to say that it is not worth living. What does a Debussy Arabesque mean? or a rainbow, or a rose. A man delights in all of these, knowing himself to be no more, a wisp of music and a haze of dreams dissolving against the sun." Well, like Peter de Vries, I would like to encourage all of you to resolve tonight to abandon the quest for the meaning of life, capital M, capital L and to focus absolutely on the quest for the meaning of your own life. And I should say that not everyone wants a meaningful life. Uh, There are plenty of Australians today who are settling for a, a kind of meaningless life based on the meaninglessness of materialism, of consumerism. And if you doubt whether Australians are in the grip of that extraordinary pursuit, just take a look at our record levels of personal and household debt, as we've been encouraged to buy, 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 in order to give some materialist meaning to our lives. And if having bought, 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 we don't feel as though our lives have acquired meaning, that just means we haven't bought enough, so borrow and spend some more, and that's indeed what we're doing. Some fall not for the blandishments of materialism, but for the blandishments of the merchants of happiness. Uh, We've been bombarded by propaganda suggesting that the key to life is personal happiness, that we're all entitled to be happy, that that's the default position for humans, and if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. So come to one of our conferences or buy one of our books or have another drink or pop a pill. There are all sorts of pharmacological pathways to perpetual happiness, if that's what you want. The proposition that somehow happiness is the most desirable state for humans is so absurd I hardly know where to begin in refuting it except to say that one of the loveliest things about being human is that we have an entire spectrum of emotions avail- available for us for dealing with all the things life throws at us. And every point on that spectrum is as authentic and as valid as every other point. And no point on the spectrum would make any sense without the context of all the others. People who dream of being perpetually happy forget that if you were, you would never be happy. Because you need to be sad in order to know what happiness is. You need to have failed in order to understand success. And as most of, our, most of us would acknowledge, our folklore has always said, we grow through pain. And yet, as soon as the pain comes, we're saying, quick, a pill or something to mask the pain as though we, don't, we haven't got time to wait and learn what that might have to teach us. But the the combination of this bombardment of propaganda from the materialists, the consumer mass marketing industry, and the merchants of happiness, what I now think of as the happiness industry, the cumulative effect of that bombardment is to seduce us with the idea that it's all about me. We've created the me culture, and in the me culture, It's very tempting to think that I'm going to have to make sense of my life in terms of me and the satisfaction of my desires. It will even lead to the view that self-knowledge, who am I, finding the answer to the question, who am I, is one of the most important things I can do. Well, again, tonight, let me invite you to resolve never again to gaze into the mirror or gaze at your navel Uh, in the quest for an answer to the question, who am I? That is not the question. The essential nature of humans is that we are social creatures. Like many other species on Earth, we're herd animals, we're tribal creatures, we belong in society with each other. We rely entirely on communities to nurture us and sustain us and even protect us. It's in our DNA to be cooperative. We learn how to be competitive, but that's not our true nature. Our true nature is to be cooperative and to live in communities. If you want to know who you are, don't look in the mirror. Don't gaze at your navel. Gaze into the faces of the people who love you. Gaze into the faces of the people who will at least put up with you. And that's where you find your identity. It's a social construct. Uh, Our identity relies on where we belong and who accepts us. So the sense of meaning of our personal, our individual lives, not the capital M meaning of capital L life, will obviously be related to our destiny as social creatures. You can't talk about the meaning of your life without looking at the social context in which you operate. The meaning of our lives grows out of the quality of our relationships. It grows out of the quality of our responses to each other. The field of positive psychology, with which I'm not entirely sympathetic, but there is some brilliant work done by people like Martin Seligman and Roy Baumeister. I'm sure many of you are familiar with their work. Uh, And what they have been saying now for some years is that happiness, which so many people strive for, is mainly about taking. But meaningfulness, the thing that brings us our deepest satisfactions, is mostly about giving. And there have been some very interesting bits of research that confirm that. One recently published by Harvard um, concerns a study which has demonstrated that parents are generally happiest when they are not with their children, uh, when they're off having dinner together or going to a movie or playing golf, but that one of the richest sources of the meaningfulness of their lives comes from uh, their responsibility as parents. Many of the things that bring us our richest sense of life's meaning do not make us happy. And many of the things that make us happy, at least fleetingly, like a holiday or a full stomach or a new car, have absolutely nothing to contribute to the sense of the meaning of our lives. So life's greatest satisfactions are available to us once we understand that life's meaning is a social concept and a a relational concept. And to quote Martin Seligman one more time, Uh, He's observed that the one crucial ingredient for a a, a really rich sense of a meaningful life is that we should place our faith in something greater than ourselves. Now, Nathan and I will be exploring that idea in a moment, because for many people that's uh, a message about God, or it's a message about religion, or a message about religious faith. Uh, That's not what Seligman was saying, and it's not what I'm saying exclusively, although I acknowledge that many people will interpret it in that way. But it seems to me, knowing that we are by nature social creatures, the thing that we ought to be placing our faith in, or at least we ought to be considering placing our faith in, is the spirit of loving-kindness, which exists within and among us, And which reminds us that love, kindness, compassion, uh, these things are the currency of any human life that approaches nobility. Thank you.
2: Good evening, everyone. And what a beautiful opening address to start this evening's conversation. The question of what makes a meaningful life is for me the most wonderful and the most enlivening. And it's a question that has informed, I think, a lot of Hugh's work over the past 50 years of research in, in, in many ways, I mean, starting out in marketing and, and social research and advertising, and now culminating in these three books about the good life and the art of belonging and uh, beyond belief. Um, and I wanted to start this conversation so um, by asking you, who, when this point of curiosity kind of started for you, when these questions arose in you? Um... Uh, there are two answers, Nathan, that, that are very different.
1: They're both valid. Uh, one is it all started a long, long time ago uh, when I was a kid, really, uh, raised in a very, very uh, strictly fundamentalist Christian household. Um, so... Uh, the whole idea of God, faith, belief, etc., was ingrained in me as a kid. Um, I moved away from it, but it was ingrained in me at that early stage. Plus, a natural curiosity about the way the world works and why people do what they do. When I think of my childhood, some of the most precious memories of childhood are of me being up a tree. In our street, uh, where I could observe but not be observed, uh, and I just loved, you know, watching people going past, eavesdropping. Uh, I didn't know that I was a born researcher, but actually I was. Um, so more recently, uh, the second answer to the question is that my my natural curiosity as a researcher, which has never left me. I mean, I'm still. I'd rather interview you than oh, yeah. be interviewed by you. You're uncomfortable at the um, moment. <laughs> Um, led me, towards the end of my sort of hands-on research career, running a research, a social research company, uh, led me to say, look, I've spent my whole life listening to people and trying to report and analyze and interpret what they're saying about everything from politics to religion to raising kids or uh, whatever, shopping, whatever it might be, Um, but there's another level of interpretation that I've always shied away from. Um, and so in these last three books that you've mentioned, this this, um, this trio of, of uh, The Good Life, The Art of Belonging, and now <laughs> Beyond Belief, you can tell they're a trio because the covers were all designed by the same person, and they look as if they are a family. Uh, this was really the moment when I uh, departed from the absolute rigor of my research discipline and decided that I, it was okay now, I was now old enough uh, to move beyond just reporting it and sort of explaining it and to be a little bit more reflective about what it might all mean and to respond, particularly in the case of the new book, to respond to what was a really obvious yearning for some sense of meaning. In people's lives. Um, Now previously I would have just reported that there's this great yearning for a sense of meaning, full stop. That's an interesting finding about Australia. But now I've gone further and said so what is this actually about and what are some of the pathways that uh, I think to satisfying that yearning. So particularly in the last chapter of the book it's not McKay the researcher anymore, it's, it's McKay the I don't know what, the, uh, the reflector.
2: Yeah. And I think being born in a religious tradition, in such a strict religious tradition as you, as you were, and for many of us who were brought, brought up in religious households, those questions of meaning and that yearning that you have uh, stays with us. And as you said, leaving, leaving the church and, and leaving the tradition has left you with what many people describe as the God-shaped whole, I think. And, yes. And perhaps that's why you revisited a lot of these topics now later in life. So what has it been like for you to, to mm. revisit this question I now? think
1: that's all very true, what you, what you just said. I mean, I when I reflect on that particular, those all those years from naught to about 23, I think of them as damaging, as, as inflicting wounds from which I will never quite recover. Uh, but I also think of them as a great blessing in many other ways, because I did get steeped in the cultural traditions of Christianity. I, I knew my Bible, the, as well as knowing my Shakespeare. And you've got to know both those things to make your way in a, in a society like Australia. Um, uh, so so it, wasn't, it wasn't all bad. But, but I think it, because I left it and then came back, I never lost interest in religion and in philosophical questions associated with religion. But it did mean, because I left it painfully, there were lots of unanswered questions that stayed in my head for decades. And I addressed them in this book. But you've made a very interesting observation also that the writing of this book, I I think the writing of any book changes the person who writes it. I don't know how many people in our audience are in the (laughs) process of writing a book or dreaming of writing a book. Uh, Let me assure you, it will change you. Uh, you can't write a book without, uh, without being changed. And this book has changed me more than any of the others I've written, um, in particular in the direction of making me much, much less interested in the labels that people wear. I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm a theist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. Who cares? Uh, the question is, what kind of society do you dream of and what are your strategies for making that dream come true? Beautiful. Does religion help you? Great. Does the absence of religion help you? Great. Hmm. The, the, the important question is the goal.
2: And one of the things you write in the book is, uh, you sort of talk about this all or nothing approach when it comes to religion. And you say one of the most effective ways of discouraging people from attending church is to insist that they meet certain requirements of being a Catholic. Say, or hmm whatever the religious tradition is. And I know this to be true for myself. This was very resonant for me because I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition as well and grew grew very close to the church towards my late teens and early 20s. And then I came out as a gay man and I found it very difficult to kind of negotiate a lot of the teachings and the stories. Um, And for a while, I tried this pick-and-choose approach to to the faith. You know, I I picked the parts that seemed to work for me, and I ignored the ones that were saying something that didn't work for me. Um, But ultimately, this wasn't sustainable, I found. And I think that is perhaps a modern conundrum that Mm. a lot of people are facing. It is absolutely the modern conundrum. And and the title of
1: my book is very carefully, there was a lot of agony about the title. There was even more agony about the subtitle. Uh, Never had so much trouble getting agreement on a subtitle. But the title, Beyond Belief, means what it says. Uh, the message of the book really is that until we move beyond, and I'm not, not against belief, very respectful of people's beliefs, but I'm suggesting that until we move beyond the restrictions of particular dogma, particular doctrinal belief associated with particular religions, the, the imaginative possibilities of faith may not be accessible to us. One of the things that struck me, and I I interviewed a lot of people in very great depth in the writing of this book. Uh, In fact, I found it impossible to shut some of them up. Uh, uh, Two or three hours of intense conversation followed by a flurry of emails with all their afterthoughts. Uh, or a phone conversation saying, look, could we meet again next week? There's a whole lot of other things I want to say. It's a subject people have a great deal to say about. But one of the things that really struck me was people saying it was only when I stopped believing in some of the stuff that I found it very hard to believe, Uh, I stopped pretending that I believed in that. it was only then that I really got uh, what the possibilities of even religious faith might be. I rethought what God might mean. Uh, Whereas until that happened, and so there were people who said, having left the religious structure, the institutional structure, and moved into some much more unstructured, deinstitutionalized spiritual journey, I found to, and, and people described, I was astonished at the number of kind of spiritual moments that people were able to describe to me where they had some particular insight or sense of enlightenment <clears throat> and what almost always followed was a feeling of oneness that actually you know we we are all part of the same whole and a sense of love towards that whole and people who been who'd come out of a religious tradition entered into a non-religious spiritual journey of some kind, experiencing all that would then say, this is quite ironic, that now I'm no longer going to church. I feel more loving towards people. Because <laughs> when I think about church, I think about all the restrictions and how we all thought we were right and everyone else was wrong and you know I had to believe in the literal truth of the virgin birth or the resurrection or uh, the miracles or whatever it might be. And when I, when I moved beyond that and saw that as a metaphorical or mythical thing that had a lot to teach me because of the truth in the stories rather than the truth of the stories, that kind of liberation almost always led to this more loving yeah. approach.
2: Yeah, I know that, giving in to the mystery yes. and giving yeah. into not having the answers yeah. to everything yeah. is a yeah. beautiful feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the
1: problems in our culture is that we think there's an answer to every question. Uh, And one of the messages of the book is, there are unanswerable questions. There are even unanswerable questions in personal relationships. There are things about each other that will always remain mysterious, sometimes irritatingly (laughs) mysterious, Uh, but that's fine. You know, let's, we ask the question, but sometimes it's better to stay with the question than to rush to an answer.
2: Um, and I know that you wanted to kind of set the scene uh, so we didn't do this at the start of what the, the picture of religious of religion looks like in Australian society at the moment. Some stats. Who are the believers? And... Yes. yes, It's a
1: very interesting picture. And, and by the way, just before I do the uh, sort of picture of the Australian scene, let's step back a bit and look at the planet Earth, which is a very, very different picture from yeah, Australia. Yeah. Um, because religion is absolutely on the march globally. Um, the The Percentage of the world's population, it's very hard to be absolutely sure of these figures, of course, because it's hard to know. But global surveys are constantly being done by some very reputable researchers. And uh, at this moment, about 75% of the world's population identify with one of the four great world religions, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, or Hinduism. And that figure is growing steadily, predicted by the middle of this century to be 80% of the world's population, claiming religious uh, affiliation. And by the way, the fastest growing, uh, the countries where religion is growing fastest are the three countries where it was once banned. Russia under Stalin, India under Nehru, China under Mao, and in those three countries, an explosion of religion. If, the, if there are militant atheists in the audience who would like to wipe religion off the map and would like to ban it, let me urge you not to ban it, because you will only cause it to prosper. <laughs> uh, so China is an extraordinary story. 100 million Christians in China. Uh, by the middle of the, by the year 2030, the prediction is there will be more churchgoers in China than in America because church-going in America is on the skids, not as much as here, but, but in the same direction. Um, and, and by 2050, China will, if, if these trends continue, China will be the world's biggest Christian country and, simultaneously, the world's biggest Muslim country, because Islam is also growing very quickly. I wish I was going to be here to see that. Yeah. Uh, it'll be an interesting experiment. So that's the world, but come to Australia, And we've got a very, very different picture, and a very confused picture. Uh, In the last census, 61% of Australians ticked Christian. In the last national survey of religious beliefs conducted by the Australian National University, a very respectable piece of research, 67 or 68%, I think, of Australians said they believe in God or, Some higher power, lumping those two things together. um, uh, um, Fairfax Nielsen uh, did another very good piece of research with exactly the same figure: 67, 68 percent saying they believe in God. In that case, so we're a nation essentially of theists, and predominantly a nation who identify as Christian. 61 percent, eight percent of Australians attend church weekly. Uh, If you, if you go a bit more generously and say, what about reasonably regular church attendance once a month or more often gets up to 15%. If you look at the great Christian festivals of Easter and Christmas, gets up to around 25%. If you if you add in all the carols by candlelight uh, in the local park, you're well over a third of Australians uh, celebrating Christmas, at least in a quasi-religious way. Um, but there are some odd quirks in all of this. Um, if, if, so only eight percent attending church weekly, 15 percent roughly month, monthly. But if you ask non-churchgoers how they feel about having a church in their local suburb, almost 90 percent of them say they love it. And if you look at the comparison between church attendance and enrollment in church schools, really weird. church, atten- church attendance through the floor, enrollment in church schools through the roof. Right.
2: So, we're traditionalists or we're nostalgic or what is <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, uh, all of the above plus more. I mean, I think I think what we're looking at there, that 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 gap between the 61% and the 8% and the huge growing proportion of people in the gap who are choosing to send their kids to church schools, I think that is about Some of the things we've already been touching on, Nathan, it's it's partly about people saying, I sign up broadly to Christian values. I do not sign up to Christian beliefs of, of the dogmatic kind. I don't wish to associate myself with the institution. In fact, the institution, like many institutions in contemporary Australia, the banks, the trade unions, the media, big business, politics, the church is on the nose as an institution. So they don't want to uh, be associated with the institution, but they want their kids to be exposed to Christian values. And they will typically say that at a church school, uh, those values permeate the, the, the school community. And the teachers are likely to be more dedicated than in a state system. Now, some, some people just say, look, I've lost faith in state education. And I think I get a better quality of education. But it's very, you know, when you try to get below the surface of that, there's always this sense, the same as people like going to um, Christian hospitals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an odd thing. And I don't, I don't, I, I like having a church in the south. I don't intend to go there. But I like to know it's there. And I like to see other people going. Uh, and I like to know they're, they're running schools and they're running hospitals. Um, uh, There's something about, in other words, people who broadly identify as Christian but not as hardline believers, nevertheless have a really sympathetic, they they think of Christians in our society broadly, there are exceptions to this, but broadly they think of them as good guys. And one of the things identified in the book is a phenomenon called faith envy, that, that many people actually wish they could enter into that sort of enthusiastic expression of Christian faith, but they can't. Or they look at their parents and envy their parents, but they can't feel or they once had it and they've lost it and as you said before, there might be some nostalgia.
2: But it also makes me think that religion has always held the space for this question of what makes a meaningful life and held the space for the questions of morality and ethics. Yes. And, in, and we don't have institutions, except we have the school of life now, which is yes. wonderful, that yes. are actually addressing a lot of, you know, these bigger questions, yes. I think that. Yeah. yeah, that is very true. And, and I think,
1: um, I mean, while we're looking at a society in which formal religious practice is in such sharp decline um, we have to I mean I will predict with no fear of contradiction that religion will not disappear from Australian cultural life in fact we'll probably see it's it's bottomed there's slight growth at the moment so we'll probably see a slight increase but Uh, The fact is that you're right. I mean, religious institutions, religious schools and some churches do create the space where life's most serious questions will be explored and where else, apart from school of life, will uh, life's most serious questions be explored. Um, and, and, And so religion gives people a lot of stuff that hasn't got anything particularly to do with faith in God or belief in the literal historical truth of some of the central myths of, of a religion. Religion is very good for health, by the way. I mean, there's a, some very interesting research showing that people who are have, have committed to religious faith and practice, generally speaking, have lower blood pressure, less cardiovascular disease, less depression. They bounce back more quickly from depression, have more stable marriages. etc. It's quite compelling. Uh, but, by the way, almost all of those health benefits can also be obtained from pet ownership. Right. So uh, so we need to interpret this carefully. Uh, Finding God in our cats. Uh, yeah. Um, but the other thing that, that... I mean, religion does give people hope. It gives people... Uh, religious people tend to be more optimistic than others. Uh, they They do love the sort of big narrative themes that they get from religion. The Mythology is very powerful. Myths are out of fashion in Australia at the moment, except urban myths. We love them. Yet the ancient myths, whether we're talking about Greek mythology or the central, and I don't want to offend anyone in the audience who has a literal belief in. Some of these events as history, but if you broadly think of the central stories of Christianity as myths with with power, potent myths with a lot of truth to convey to us, um, th- when when people are in, involved in weekly or reasonably regular participation in in religious services they 're exposed to all of this and it 's very energizing but faith is a very potent thing you know I, I talked about faith in in uh, the spirit of loving-kindness, a theme we might return to, but faith in anything, good and bad, does energise us. If you, if you doubt the power of faith, um, don't think about the religious context, think about the medical context. Mm. Uh, all the research that's been done on the placebo effect uh, is research that demonstrates the power of faith. If, you, and if you're testing a new drug and you get two samples of people Two match samples, one sample gets the drug, the other sample gets the placebo, you know, a capsule full of chalk or some inert substance with no therapeutic properties at all. In hundreds of published papers on this sort of research, a persistent 30% of people who've taken the placebo report the health benefits they expected to get from the drug. Now, that's the power. I mean, the, the, we're, we're digressing slightly, but I can't resist mentioning the most dramatic paper I've ever read on the placebo effect, which is quite recent. Very respectable study conducted uh, in the US on um, surgery. People who were, if you've recently had an arthroscopy, don't, don't listen to this story. <laughs> uh, but this was a group of people who were lined up for an arthroscopy uh, on a knee. Uh, They agreed to take part in this trial and the trial was half of them would have the arthroscopy, the other half would have an incision in the skin sewn up. So superficially they wouldn't be able to tell whether they'd had the surgery or not. You can guess the result. the, The researchers reported that there was no statistically significant difference between those who'd had, in pain relief or in knee function, between those who'd had the arthroscopy and those who just had the incision. So let's, let's not scoff at faith healing. We can do it to ourselves. <laughs> so th- these are po- and, the, and the other really powerful thing, I, and I, I mean School of Life does this too, and so do many other organizations, giving us a strong sense of tribal, connection. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspect of church attendance which is often overlooked. People only think about the religious content. The social content is enormous. Mm. Uh, this is a, typically, faith communities are lovely examples of human communities where there's a lot of mutual caring that mm-hmm. goes on. Mm.
2: And yet it also creates the, the us and oh, them, yes. you Absolutely. know, this othering that happens and that has fueled conflict yes. for centuries. And so I think the question that we have to ask in this globalised age is how we can be members of our unique tribes and our unique religions while also being global citizens. I don't know how, would you, how you would start to yeah, talk about that, I guess.
1: Absolutely right, and, and that would include, um, of course, moving beyond, when we think about religious traditions, moving beyond. I mean, we talk in Australia about you know, the, the growing Muslim presence in Australia and so on and how this is going to fragment the culture. 2.2% of the Australian population are Muslim. 2.5% are Buddhist. The fastest growing religion in Australia is Hinduism. But at the moment, it's about 1.6, but growing more rapidly than any other. So we, we, we don't have much of a challenge in the Australian context. Globally, we do. And I mean, that gets right to the heart of one of my dreams for this book, Nathan, which is that we would start to say the Christian Uh, The non-practicing Christian or the the practicing Christian, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the atheist, the agnostic, whoever, whatever private beliefs you might have, whatever way you might choose to define God or not define God, and agnostics would say this is a question I'm not going to engage with, Um, whatever... Whatever's going on there, I, I respect it all. I don't, want to ch- I don't want people to give up any of that stuff. I just want them to think about the common ground. What, what is it that coming out of any of these traditions, or none, what is it that we could share? Now, for example, if you said to a hardline atheist, I'm sure there are some in the auditorium, Um, If I said to a hardline atheist, do you believe uh, that love is a powerful emotion? Do you believe that kindness and compassion uh, are wonderful qualities in human beings and when we exercise them, we make the world a better place? The atheist is very likely to say, yeah, you know, what's the issue? Of course. And if you say to the Christian who has a strong New Testament sense of what God is. Well, the New Testament says God is spirit. Uh, Not a spirit, spirit. God is love. There are all these ideas of what God might be. So if you said to a Christian, um, do you include the spirit of loving kindness, uh, the, the need for compassion, is that all part of what you think of as god yes well what you're worshiping or what you're revering what you're hoping to act in response to is exactly the same as this atheist over here who also believes in the spirit of loving kindness as a force for good now i don't mind if you want to say if you want to call that god and i don't mind if you don't want don't want to call that god but if we actually agree about such deep-seated things about human possibility and human nobility, uh, why aren't we getting into that? Why aren't we celebrating it and exploring it and being honest with each other? Uh, I mean, one of, one of the things I did it, in writing the book, obviously, was to go back to... Because the book is written in a Christian culture uh, for, for Australian society. I went back to what most Christians would tell you are the core teachings of the, the sort of core values of Christianity. So you go back to the parables and the famous Sermon on the Mount. Now who knows whether Jesus ever said any of that or who actually wrote it. It's a it's a Matthew scoop, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not mentioned in anywhere else. Uh, but anyway, let's Let's assume wherever it came from, it is generally accepted through the tradition of the the Christian church, generally accepted as the distillation of Christian values. Now, if you read that, uh, a couple of really big things will strike you, will slap you in the face. One is it's not about happiness. Another is it's not about believing anything. All it's about is how we will respond to each other. It's all about how we will broaden the old Jewish definition of neighbor so that the word neighbor embraces everyone, the strangers as well as uh, the friends and physical neighbors, uh, that, we will, that we will be utterly committed to kindness and compassion towards the marginalized, the disadvantaged, the poor, the sick, it's, uh, that's all it's about. I mean, it's a remarkable statement of this. It's a big, big call. You know, if you, someone asks you to walk a mile, go the second mile. Someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, um, pray for your enemies, etc. cetera. Uh, big call. But it's not about believe anything. It's about how you act.
0: Yeah.
2: And I also think about how those words, loving kindness, have lost the power in yeah. our culture. We use love and kindness yes. so easily and so flippantly that yes. we forget how much weight they hold and, and how much... Yes. Common ground they hold for all of us.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's important to hyphenate them in, in the context of this sort of conversation. It's, because it's a Buddhist,
2: Buddhist notion of right? yeah, loving kindness. Yeah, right? yeah, it
1: is. And, and um, it's also a word that crops up a lot in the Bible. Um, but it's gone, it, it has no real currency in our, in our current um, normal social interaction. But I like it because kindness isn't quite enough. Uh, and when you say love or acting lovingly, people get all caught up in the idea that that's an emotional state. And, of course, sometimes it is. But I think the importance of the kind of love we're talking about when we talk about creating a better world, it's got nothing to do with our emotional state. It's a, it's a motivational idea. It's a mindset. And so I think when you attach kindness to it, that conveys the idea that i am I'm acting kindly out of a loving disposition, that's my discipline to be loving. Regardless of who you are or where you come from or what state you're in or how how bad you smell or how boring you are, you need me, here I am.
2: I'm gonna move the conversation a little bit away from religion. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I'd love to hear your thoughts on is the importance of having a national identity. So it's speaking to these ideas of belonging. And so you've been invested in this research and you've been analysing Australian social behaviour for 50 years, as I said. I'd love to know it's, how you've seen... actually 60. 60, okay, perfect. <laughs> I'd love to know how you've seen the Australian identity change and evolve over these years, and how you would start to define it now in 2016. Mm.
1: Well, in my lifetime, in my, in my lifetime, professional lifetime as a researcher, it's changed so profoundly it's hard to know where, where to begin. Um, because uh, when I... E- even when I started work, straight out of school, I got into the research because it was a lucky accident. Um, But we thought of ourselves as uh, members of the British Empire. I mean, when I was at school, I was a British subject because there was no legal status of Australian citizen. So the whole British heritage thing was incredibly strong and ingrained in us. We didn't think it was peculiar that 25% of the Australian flag was the Union Jack. Of course it would be. Now I think it's deeply peculiar. Um, By the way, back then the the, the flag was red, and then it became blue, and people who say, you know, we've always lived and died for the blue ensign, that's complete rubbish. The blue ensign is relatively recent. We did some sort of deal with the Navy. I think we gave them the red and we took the blue. Something happened. Uh, Anyway, um, but but back then um, we had a clear sense of Australia as an outpost of Britain, uh, today, if you said, let's, let's define the Australian national identity. Um, oh, and by the way, back then also, an important part of the Australian national identity was that it was something utterly controlled, administered by, run by, dominated by blokes. Women were second-class citizens, and many women accepted that they were... So this is one of the tragedies of... You know, the the 40s, the 50s, even the 60s, that women accepted. Yeah, okay, I'm a married woman. I have to give up my permanent job in the public service. Of course I'll get less superannuation than a man because I'm a woman. Of course I'd have to get my husband's permission if I wanted to travel overseas. What? (laughs) He didn't have to get your permission if he wanted to travel. That's how it was. That was the Australia I was growing up in. Um, So look at it now. I would find it almost impossible to define the Australian identity in 2016, except to say we are defined by our diversity. That whereas back then, you could talk about a sort of mainstream culture. You could talk about a relatively homogeneous culture with a huge post-war influx of refugees, who were then known quite affectionately as refos, uh, essentially Greeks and Italians, uh, displaced persons, they were sometimes called from World War II. Um, and we were very nervous about them because they, they threatened the, the sort of the monocultural view we had of ourselves. Today, the view is uh, that, that we are, we have become a diverse society. We acknowledge that in a city like Sydney or Melbourne, uh, probably, I, I can't give you the exact figure for Melbourne, but but in round figures, 40% of the population of Melbourne either were not born in Australia mm. or have at least one parent not born in Australia. Now, that sort of stuff was unthinkable. Mm. In I started my career in 1955. No-one talked about diversity, mm. and, and such figures as those uh, would not have been able to have been dreamt of, nor would the greatest of all the cultural revolutions we've been through in that period, the, the liberation of women and the gender revolution and the sense, not yet realized, but the sense that gender equality is, um, is uh, warranted and we ought to be striving to achieve it as quickly as possible. So when Australians say uh, confidently, particularly journalists and commentators of or politicians, talk confidently about the Australian identity or, excuse me, when John Howard talked about mainstream Australian values, I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, when Tony Abbott talked about Team Australia, I mean, who's on it, you know? Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a ragtag sort yeah. of a team. You know, we are, we are a mongrel nation. Uh, yeah. And and I think that's really exciting. And every now and then we get nervous about it. I mean, you'll notice that at the moment we've we've stopped talking about officially multiculturalism is a word neither side of politics now uses. They talk about integration. I don't care what they talk about. The fact is we are a magnificently, beautifully, and remarkably harmoniously multicultural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason i say we're remarkably harmoniously i think we're the example to the world of how to pull people in from about 200 different birthplaces around the world and make this thing work and sure there are problems yeah there's uh, there are ethnic tensions and we hear about them they're big news and the reason they're big news is they're so odd Mm-hmm. that mostly we're making it work. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get complacent about how everything brilliant, and not everything is brilliant in Australia, but on this point, it's brilliant.
2: Yeah, and it makes me wonder if we even need a national identity at all. Do we yeah. need to start thinking I, about...
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't think a mature society obsesses about its identity yeah. any more than I think a mature individual yeah. obsesses about their identity. It's a very adolescent yeah. thing to do, to be... Who am I? You know, what what will become of me? Uh, you know, even even having the Australian of the year is a really weird sign that we haven't grown up yet.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> a sign of this me culture which you were talking about before. Yeah. And I want to talk yeah. about the, the I want to talk about this, the happiness movie the happiness movement, I should say, that we've mm. all fallen victims of over the past couple of decades. Mm. Um, institutions is feeding us this idea that our default position has to be happy and like you say, yes. if we're not happy we better do something about it, go find a pill or whatever that thing is. Yes. Um, and I, I think I, I, I dislike that so much because it's ignoring uh, imperfection and struggle and sadness and all of these things that are essential mm. to our human experience Absolutely. and we're talking about this just before, uh, just before now. Um, how, someone, how I heard someone say that the definition of humanity was in fact imperfection. And yes. I thought that was so, so beautiful. Yes. Um, and I just wonder what you see the impact of the happiness movement mm. or what you've seen it to have had over there.
1: Yeah, I think we're, we're now beginning to see um, the impact, especially on the rising generation of, adult, of uh, adolescents and young adults. If you feed young people the idea that all outcomes should be positive, Uh, that happiness is their birthright, Uh, that their self-esteem is the most important thing in the world and it must be built up and protected, gold stars for breathing, Uh, (laughs) rewards for absolutely everything. Uh, Look, if if you do this to a generation, you set up completely unrealistic expectations of what life will be like, You guarantee that as they enter into early adulthood, they will hit the wall. You guarantee what we have now seen, that they will become frightened of sadness. Uh, You more or less guarantee that you'll have an epidemic of anxiety and depression, which we are now having in Australia among young people. Uh, 25% of Australian young people now have an episode of clinical depression, not just feeling a bit blue, but diagnosable depression before the age of 20. Now, that, that's, that's, we've done that. You know They haven't done that to themselves. It, it, a lot of causes, and one of them is fragmentation, loss of cohesive and stable communities, a lot of family fragmentation, all of that, but also this idea that you, you're meant to be terrific, life is meant to be terrific you're supposed to be happy, what a, what a thing to sell kids because, I mean, we, we, we might be happy every day for a fleeting moment, uh, we might be sad every day for a little while, you know, there'll be periods of weeks when we'll feel down and blue, and you hear parents and even grandparents, you know, a child is crying, and, and, and you hear adults say, come on, give us a smile. This is a very, very weird piece of cultural formation, yeah. as though I'm only interested in smiling kids. Yeah. Uh, but if this child is frowning, or weeping, or looking really miserable, surely an arm around the shoulder saying, I feel like this sometimes. You know, I wonder where this came from. I wonder what this is about. It mightn't be about anything. You might just be feeling blue. They're probably a bit young to have hormones explained to them. But, um, <laughs> but a lot of our moods uh, emanate from the gut. Mm. or from a hormonal uh, effects washing through the brain mm. let's let's notice it let's yeah. let's deal with it let's develop resilience so that we can cope with all of these fluctuations yeah. let's not pretend that it's all going to be lovely
2: yeah And it's odd for me because I think about my life and I think that I'm really made by the things that have broken me, that all the difficult points in my life is when I really can't become who I am and Mm. they've been the most formative parts. And if we're ignoring those parts of our lives, then we're not living into who we really are meant to be. Yeah, Uh, and and I
1: think that's, that's a very profound observation. And I think everyone in the auditorium could echo it, Nathan. I think anyone who's lived beyond the age of about... 15, uh, will recognize that the really formative, the really instructive experiences are the tough ones. Um, uh, James Magnusson, we remember James Magnusson. He used to be an Australian champion swimmer and he's not going to Rio. I think I'm right in saying, is that correct? Um, anyway, he was, a, he was a hero of the London Olympics. And you may remember that at the London Olympics, where he was expected to win a gold medal. He failed dismally and only got a silver or something. Um, but he, but he, he did, did unexpectedly badly in a semi final um, and said uh, the following day that he had learned more about himself in the last 24 hours than he had in the previous 24 years or however long, however old he was. Uh, In other words, he was making an observation that humans throughout history have made, which is when something bad or disappointing or sad uh, happens to me when a relationship hits turbulence or where I'm sacked or where I experience life-threatening illness or whether I'm mildly disappointed by my performance at something, I learn a great deal from that. That's that's why, as I said in my opening few remarks, that the folklore tells us we grow through pain. And that's very wise. So it's it's very weird that when the pain comes, in this contemporary happiness-obsessed, self-esteem-obsessed, positive outcome-obsessed culture, uh, we're saying, oh, gee, you know, there's something wrong. Uh, Doc, prescribe
2: something. You know, I'm feeling blue. We do have to go to questions from the audience, but I just wanted to finish by asking you... Uh, I was invited by the School of Arts to ask you about some practical ideas for cultivating a meaningful life. It's a very big question to end on, but just whatever you could suggest for how we might go out into the world. Well, uh, yes, I, I, I
1: mean, I think, I think the answer is both simple and very, very difficult. Um, simple in the sense it's easy to describe, difficult in the sense that it's... Not, not easy to implement, because we are constantly buffeted by the propaganda that would lead us to think it's all about me. Um, but the, but the, the strategy is to say, I am, by nature, social. I need these people. I need this community. I need somewhere to belong. And this thing that I rely on to define me and to nurture and sustain and protect me will not function unless I'm nurturing it, unless I'm engaging, unless I'm participating. When I hear, for example, in big cities, uh, suburban areas of Melbourne, Sydney, etc., when I hear people saying, We don't know our neighbours, or I feel a bit like a stranger in my own street. Not only do I think this is socially serious, but I think it's deeply sad. Uh, If you don't know your neighbors, please knock on their door tomorrow and just say, G'day, I'm Hugh. Just thought you should know who lives next door. Uh, I mean, we're starting to wake up to this. And it's harder because communities are more transient than they used to be. They're less stable, they're less cohesive than they used to be. But we need them. Uh, And we won't have them unless we engage with them. So I think that the first strategy is make sure you are the kind of person who is positively contributing to the life of your neighborhood. Smile at everyone. Hmm. Don't ever stand at a bus stop with a stranger and not say, looks like rain or why is the bus late. Engage. You know, if you said to a Martian, these humans who populate the planet Earth, they're social creatures. And then you showed the Martian our behavior at bus stops, in lifts, etc. that Martian would say, no, no, they're not social creatures at all. They, they ignore each other even when they're in a confined space. What a, what a strange thing to do. So you know we've got, to, we've got to loosen up. We've got to start engaging. We've got to stop teaching our kids about stranger danger. We've got to teach them to be sensible. But raising a generation of kids who think that strangers are dangerous, and you better avoid eye contact with people in the street, Well, in our country towns, they don't avoid eye contact. But in our suburbs, they do. Just try it. Try eye contact and watch people look away. And force them by saying, good (laughs) day, how are you? So I'd be be doing that. That's really practical. But I'd also, at a more philosophical level, I'd be saying, OK, I actually believe in the power of love. I actually believe that kindness is the best way for humans to be. I actually admire people who are compassionate towards the unlovely. I'd like to be like that. So be like that. I mean, we're, we're, very, we're very good at complaining about the state of society or even the state of the nation. I think the, the solution is not, well, how we vote at the next election may be part of the solution, but not a very big part, because the state of the nation actually starts in your street.
2: Yeah, that's the most empowering thing, I think, for Mm. us to all take from this. Mm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for joining us for the Dumbo Feather podcast. Stay tuned for next month's conversation, or you can hear about it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. Let us know your thoughts by reviewing us on iTunes or sending an email to hello at dumbofeather.com. We love hearing from you, your thoughts, your feedback, and general love letters. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. For future School of Life events happening in your area, head to theschooloflife.com. This episode was produced by the marvellous Beck Fari and Jane Nethercote and wrangled by Serena Ashmore. Podcast music by Dennis Liu. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.